Welcome to episode 44 of No Challenges Remaining, live from the Wimbledon Village in the beautiful SI house. Aww. Courtney is having me over here to the wonderful Sports Illustrated place. It's a nice place you got yourselves here. It's not too bad. I'm honored and blessed and very lucky to be here as opposed to couch surfing as has been the case in the past. So no complaints. No complaints at all. We don't have a whole lot to complain about on this week's show. <laughs> um, oh, we should do intros. I'm Ben Rothenberg. This is Courtney Nguyen. We're very excited for this week's show. Not only because it's a Wimbledon preview show, which really should be a pretty big show on its own. And the fact that we are reuniting. And first time we've seen each other, what, since I know, Charleston? It's so been a while. Over so two it's months. Good. So yeah. it's Lovely to see you again, Courtney. As as you, Ben, although I miss the big fro hair. You you went corporate, I feel like. I'm, I'm really sad about this. Ben got a haircut. Although the first thing you did when you saw me today for the first time <laughs> two months was like mock how messy my hair was. So I'm not super corporate. I don't really understand the how you get a cowlick on the side of your head. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> we, there was a lot to talk about this week. And so much. And we're pretty excited to talk about it. Let's get right to it. Yeah. Obviously, as everyone knows, the big story that's been happening in women's tennis this week and all the conversation and drama has been about uh, the 10-match winning streak of Simona Halep, who just uh, reeled off back-to-back titles in Nuremberg. No? Nuremberg and Stogenbosch? That wasn't the story? No. Good on Simona. I think the real story probably has to do with an article written by Stephen Roderick. Is that more what I'm what you're thinking? I think you're getting now, warmer. You're now getting we're warmer. on the same page. Stephen Roderick wrote an article for Rolling Stone about Serena Williams, a profile of Serena Williams that featured a sort of jungly photo of her on the spread. I don't know if that was on the online version, actually. Okay. Oh, no, I didn't actually see the print photo. Yeah. Is when, there when, a photo it, when it comes out, yes, there's a photo shoot. So she's looking sort of like a jungle warrior of some sort, a leather bikini type thing. So yeah, I've seen the print version. So that was uh, that was interesting. But that's not really what got the attention in the article. Not pictures. Um, let's talk about let's talk the about words. Let's talk about the article itself before we get to the sort of content of it. What did you make of the article that Stephen Roderick wrote about Serena. Sure. I mean, it's a relatively lengthy Serena Williams profile. Four Um, online pages. Four online pages. Four or so in the print, too, with a bunch of big photos. Okay. Done by Stephen Roderick. He spent the, what sounds like a day, with Serena um, at her house, you know, at the nail salon, at practice courts, you know, to and from, driving her. He almost, he jokes that he almost kills her in oncoming traffic. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. But, But the two main things... Unfortunately, I think, generally speaking, that came out of the article are one, a kind of offhand, in my opinion, comment from Serena regarding the Steubenville rape case that takes place at the the nail salon and the news comes on and she kind of, I don't know, what was your take, Ben? I mean, it sounded to me that she was kind of just stream of consciousness, just blurting out words. This is the thing that we talk about with uh, comparing to the other sort of long form interview profile that went wrong for somebody recently with Sloane Stevens and her comments about Serena. Sloane, though she has claimed she thought it was off the record, I'm not entirely sure that was the case. Sloane was being very clear, like, I want people to hear this. People need to know that I don't. I think this and this about Serena. She's not who you think she is. The Steubenville stuff with Serena, it seemed like she was just sort of rambling on about stuff that was on TV, the same way that a lot of people do when things come on TV or on the news. Obviously, neither you nor I, Courtney, agree with what she said. There's a lot of big problems with the assumption she said she was right to apologize for those remarks. I think we both probably agree. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and to be specific, the remarks were that she seemed to be, in her comments, sympathetic towards the two young guys who raped the young 16-year-old, kind of questioning whether or not they 
received too much or too harsh of a sentence, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, she seems to kind of take a to bit blame of a, the girl for being drunk. Yeah, to blame yeah. the girl for being drunk, and that you know, obviously within rape culture and not just America, but even worse globally, really. Yeah. The assumption that there is any situation that any woman can put herself in that would invite rape is a pretty remarkable. Statement to it's, make. It's, it's problematic thing, but it is also a view that a lot of people yes. clearly hold, and it's a lot of view that a lot of. I mean, there was some discussion about this that a lot of women maybe convince themselves that rape, you know, is is preventable because to think that it's not is sort of too scary, right? On yeah. Some level. Hannah so Wilkes wrote a great piece yeah. on the changeover, basically saying that that if we think if women walk around thinking that like no matter what you do, you could be walking around like in you know a turtleneck and baggy pants. And you can still get raped. Like, you think that there's something really, really fucked up in the world. And, you know, so, yeah, there are women who think that you can kind of control your kind of risk rate, I suppose. So that really was the main story that grabbed headlines. We'll get to the other part of it later when it comes up um, with recent developments on that. Um, but, yes, yeah, so Serena apologized for it. But just in general, what did you make of, of the, uh, the piece and how that was featured in the piece and we can segue into the other quotes. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it's hard because I think that for myself, obviously the Steubenville quotes uh, grabbed headlines. On the whole, I, I guess I, I took a little bit of issue with the angle or the argument that was initially taken in the beginning of the piece, which is that let, you know, she, that Serena doesn't give a flying fuck about what you think and she's just going to do it her way. And I just really reacted. My initial reaction was like, that's not true. Serena cares very much what people think of her. And that is why she has these panic attacks at slams. And that's why she freaks out. And she has such kind of a, at times, inconsistent, seemingly personality is because she's trying to kind of hit what is to her somewhat a moving target, which is kind of public approval and things like that. So to the extent that the piece kind of led with that, and that's where I thought it was going, it felt like the the Steubenville quotes were just a complete non sequitur that they just were just a red herring that really didn't provide any insight into Serena's character. I mean, the the next kind of quote that's used after that is about her finding, what, 75% income tax rate in, in France, France yeah. to be absolutely appalling. And I'm like, dude, like, I have friends who, you know, read Slate, who are registered Democrats, who hate high taxes, and they will tell you that it's 75%. I mean, it's it that's just... It is appalling. Yeah, no, 75%. It's hard to find an American who will sign on and agree with 75%. Right, so I just kind of felt like the combination of those two things really didn't give any insight. He he made some assumptions and just characterizations of things about Serena and her relation to the tennis world and how the tennis world feels about her. Be specific, like what do you mean? I mean, the article just says some things that just sort of immediately sort of put me off when I was reading it. The opening of the story compares Serena to Kim Jong-un, which is weird, let's be clear. And then it said, then it compares her to say she's built like a monster truck and crushes Volkswagens, which again, weird. It just, it's just, it's very, those are very sort of jarring intros for me. It's well, someone who, who, you know, obviously has interacted with Serena Plenty and deals with her on a more granular pressure level. I don't go around describing her as someone who's a monster truck who crushes things and it's, you know, this huge destroyer. But it thing. all goes into that whole kind of picture that I think that he tries to paint of her being this kind of, yeah, Mack truck through a brick wall. Yeah. The brick wall at times being tennis, that brick wall being at times opponents, that brick wall, you know. And yeah, I mean, we all know that Serena is a bit of a force of nature within tennis. Yeah. But 
to kind of tie that into this idea that Serena just doesn't care and she doesn't care what you think and she's just going to do her thing. No. That's reductive and to, to put it honestly, in my opinion, in the best case scenario, that's reductive and in the worst case scenario, that's just completely flat out wrong. Yeah. And like I think Serena that, and I've cares. talked to a number of like tennis writers after this piece came out and a lot of people have kind of said like, that's, that's not Serena. No, Serena is someone... Who is, has a lot of insecurities about stuff. She's Serena, sensitive. Yeah, she's a sensitive she's person. She's a very sensitive woman. She and, will, you know... And I say that as a positive. Yeah. This, that's why I just think that this kind of depiction of her as a monster, right? Like this big Godzilla who's just tearing through Tokyo. Relentless is force really, of nature, no. It's actually not... Doesn't capture her. And I think it's very unfair to her because it, it's... Serena is a much more multifaceted person than that. And she's much more complex in a positive way. Yeah. Than that, and I find her to be a compelling character, or not character, but a compelling athlete and a compelling icon because of those complexities, not because she's some dumb monster that's just better at everything than everybody else. Like that's not compelling. No, that's not that's (laughs) not who she is. So I think that's where the article sort of threw me off. And so I mean, it doesn't it makes the placement of the quotes and just sort of gives them this weird framing. When you see just the quote quoted on Deadspin, when Deadspin comes out and says. Whoa, Serena Williams article, and here's what she said, and here's the big blow-up quote. Okay, that's one thing. But in the context of the article, I just found the whole whole thing very uneven and very just sort of all over very all over the place, really. All over the place is the main hyphenated adjective I would use to describe it. I would be I would be okay with like an article that's uneven or scattered or all these sorts of things. That's fine. I just I guess for me, I just really just think that if this was gonna be Rolling Stone and this was gonna be a Serena profile for the mainstream. No. Right? Because there is a side of me that says, okay, like maybe the tennis media, and this will, I know that I'm going to get flack for this because many people think the opposite, but maybe the tennis media coddles Serena too much. Maybe we protect her too much because we do have to deal with her on a weekly basis. And, you know, maybe she does say crazy things and we kind of dismiss it because we're like, well, that has nothing to do with anything. We're just concerned about her as a tennis player. Yeah, that might be over. I don't know how many things we just crazy things. I don't think so either. We we don't definitely don't ignore Things. We don't like not public. It's not like she's no. saying things else about Steubenville, and we're not publishing. Them. No, no, no. That is def- that is no. absolutely. I mean, as far at least not for me. I, I can't tell no. what no. other one on ones are like. But Serena's been nothing but gracious towards me, and and I have always really appreciated that. But I am also, I think, and I think that you are the same way, Ben. Like if something's fair and it's on the table, it's on the table. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. It's kind of like tough luck. I mean, I got to write about this. Yeah, no, completely, <laughs> you know? completely true. And I think. That's what's um, made this and the Sloan article a little bit interesting. You have these two writers who are not part of the tennis world whatsoever. They don't cover tennis. The way they write about tennis is not in a super familiar or intimate with the sport, you know, every breath of the sport way. And they kind of do these pieces that can at times feel a little bit like hit and runs. They parachute in. They parachute in. They they drop a grenade and they fly out of there. And it's happened before. I mean, like I was, you know, we were talking about it happening with Laura Robson years ago when she was 16 and said a bunch of W, you know, like WTA is full of sluts or whatever. And for a Vogue article. And, you know, and she's been, that's, that's been followed her, you know, that's followed her and that will follow her wherever she goes. And what's so frustrating, I think sometimes I mean, I, I don't have a problem with the ESPN article because I think that it was well-written. I think it was well-researched. And yeah. I think that what Sloan said was absolutely relevant to the article. Yeah, because she's talking about her competitor in the sport. And she's trying to debunk what she considers to be a media myth, which don't get me started on that. but Because yeah. it wasn't a media myth. You can go back and you can look at what Sloan said about Serena the last two years. And it wasn't a myth. It came yeah. from her. But, you know, I what is frustrating sometimes is that you do have these situations where... 
these people, these writers who are very good writers and very good journalists swoop in, they do their piece, they leave. And I just really feel like, especially before today, coming into Wimbledon, felt like, God, it's going to be a week of cleaning up trash. Cleaning up the mess that somebody else made. Cleaning up the mess that somebody else made. Because one of us is going to have to ask the question and we're going to be the one that's like, oh, really? You're the one that brought it up? And it's like, no, I'm not bringing it up. Like, you know, like it's on the table because of you gave this interview with this random person. But I, I can't leave it alone. And that happened, I think, with me when I was in Rome and I had to ask Sloan about everything because that was the first time that American press had kind of seen her since the, the ESPN article had hit. And it was an awkward conversation. And that's sure. fine. I don't have a problem no. with the awkwardness of it. But, you know, you do kind of feel like in the, to the extent that you do have to deal with these people all the time, that you're expending capital that you're not actually wanting to expend. You're doing it because you have to. Yeah. Because, you know, and it's a bit it comes, it comes with the territory. I mean, obviously, it's not meant to be, you know, best friends party with the no, players absolutely. all the time. But these these two back-to-back, and especially this one, seemed a bit, like, hit and run was really a term that seemed, you know, to sort of take these shots and said these things and expose her in this way that he knew was, you know, designed to get attention and throws it in there. And again, it, like we said, I'm not sure what exactly the Super Bowl marks show us about Serena or tell us that, you know, is important. Obviously, it's a sloppy thing to say. Yeah. And, and she should be vilified for it. And I mean, she should to be the vilified for it. that it's been published. She should, she should know better. Yes. I mean... She's a pro. She's a pro. She's this, a this, 31-year-old this was, veteran this was, this, was a, this was a very naive moment. Sloan is 19, hasn't done as many long-form interviews. You could sort of excuse it a little bit. But yeah, Serena does this. She puts herself out there, with gives this guy access, and then she gets burned. And you have a feeling that she's going to sort of shut down with... We haven't seen Serena yet at Wimbledon, so we don't know exactly how she'll be, but I'm guessing she won't be at her most shipper. Yeah. Probably fair to guess. The other part of the interview, which we have not touched on as much yet, the remarks that really were only interesting to the tennis world, didn't get any sort of mainstream coverage, was a part of the article. And this is a little bit of a weird setup for it, too. Serena was on the phone with Venus, her sister, and was talking about someone who was only identified by the author of the article as a top five player. Did not say who it was exactly. And Serena says about this person, Serena says to Venus, who's on the phone, and the author is apparently recording half of his phone conversation, which is a little weird, quoting half a phone conversation. Who knows what Venus is saying? And if Venus was agreeing with her, Venus got completely off the hook on this. <laughs> um, Serena says, there are people who live, breathe, and dress tennis. I mean, seriously, give it a rest. Uh, Serena then exits the car, and the conversation moves on to a top five player who is now in love. She begins every interview with, I'm so happy, I'm so lucky. It's so boring, Serena says in a loud voice. She's still not going to be invited to the cool parties. And hey, if she wants to be with the guy with a black heart, go for it. And then Stephen Roderick says he's taking an educated guess that Serena is talking about Maria Sharapova, who is now dating Grigor Dimitrov, one of Serena's rumored exes. So let's first talk about that part. Do we think that Serena's talking about Sharapova? Probably. Yes. Yeah. Everyone's playing the guessing game. Like, who is it? Who is no, it? No, it's, it's Ashley Sharapova. Sharapova. Because, I mean, we haven't, I don't think we've talked about the Serena Dimitrov stuff on the show before. No, because it's always been, you know, some, one of those things that I've, I mean, I've known about it for a while, yeah, but both. I have also kind of thought it was completely irrelevant because I tried to focus the things that I write about or tweet about about the on-court stuff unless it's completely on the table and you're like, okay, well, we now unless Unless this. off-court stuff, I mean, we're not here giving you a, a blow-by-blow of hookups on the tour. That's <laughs> we, never, that's we never, know things. We know, we know, we know plenty of things. But it's not really And pairings not that would, you know, surprise lots of people, I'm sure. But we're not here to, you know, 
be a gossip columnist about this, really. I mean, we have our moments, but not, not generally it's not our thing. Yeah, so we never mentioned that, but that did, that was a thing that happened mostly around the last spring, Miami time. So yeah, that definitely makes it seem like Serena was probably talking about Sharapova. Sharapova had a press conference today. Roll tape. Maria Sharapova was asked if she'd read the Serena Williams interview in Rolling Stone. She said she had. And the person asked what she made of the comments in it. Sharapova said, Obviously, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Serena and what she's achieved on the court. You can never take anything away from that. And we're going to let some audio of Maria Sharapova play out the rest of the statement. I was definitely a little bit sad to hear about what she had to say about the whole case. Um, you know, as as for myself or whether it was about somebody else, um, nothing personal. You know, we've we've talked to Serena many times and I know everyone tries to create, you know, rivalries between us here and there, but at the end of the day we have a tremendous amount of respect for what we do on the court, but I I just think that she should be talking about her accomplishments, her achievements rather than than everything else that's just getting attention and controversy. And if she wants to talk about something personal, you know, maybe she should talk about her relationship and, you know, her her boyfriend that was you know, married and is getting a divorce and has kids, you know, we should talk about other things but not draw attention to other things. She has so much in her life and many positives, and I think that's what it should be about. Sherry Pova was then asked if she had seen the apology that Serena had made about the Steubenville case, and Sherry Pova said, I haven't seen the apology. So, Ben, we were both in that press conference. Yep. We were, I mean, as of right now, like, there's a lot of, um, especially American press, who are still in the air. Yeah. I mean, most people, I think, were, were at the airport and stuff like that. Ben just happened, and I just happened to be and some people here. who weren't there. I mean, honestly, the attendance in that press conference wasn't huge. No, it wasn't. It was a smattering of, really, people. As it was all day, even. Even Murray wasn't that full today. Yep. And I think that's just the thing. A lot of these pre-tournament press conferences tend to be really pretty dull. Yeah. This was not one I was expecting to be interesting beforehand. Yeah. And it definitely, definitely got that way. And let's talk about, uh, just get the visuals little bit to the audio people just heard. What was Sharapova's demeanor during during this attack on Serena's personal life? It was pointedly nonchalant. Yep. That's how I would describe it. In other words, this discussion has happened privately between her and Grigor or Max or whoever. She knew kind of what her comeback was going to be with respect to, to calling out uh, Serena and, and, and Patrick Mortoglu. This was premeditated. This was premeditated. I mean, I was making a joke to Ben at dinner before this that it was Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. It was like premeditated. You had the team in place. Night fell and you went in decisively with a game plan to pull it off. And you did. And, you know, and all day on Twitter, I was kind of making KGB jokes just yeah. about how, you know, one bullet, one shot, one body. <laughs> like she, she is like, you know, she didn't miss and she kind of was very calm throughout. And... It was a cold, calculated move, I gotta say. It was cold, and there was just sort of like... And very un-Maria, and very, I have to say. Very un-Maria, and very like, sort of dismissive. Her body language is like sort of just like, like, are we really talking about this? Because if we want to talk about this, we can talk about Serena <laughs> and all of these terrible things about her boyfriend, you know, and her being a homewrecker, essentially the analogy I used. The sort of the whole tone of it was, you know, people in glass whorehouses shouldn't <laughs> throw stones, was essentially was essentially yeah. the theme. So that's how it was, and that's not what you usually get from Maria Sharapova. Sharapova really, Sharapova has plenty of people in this tennis world who she does not like. Sharapova is very big on pe- doing things the right way. Sharapova is very, very methodical, very... very not sloppy not sloppy whatsoever and she i think generally doesn't have a lot of respect this is my reading Mm -hmm. on maria that she doesn't have respect for people who are sloppy 
who, I mean, Maria just really thinks that you should be a certain way. And that's not necessarily the way Maria, like you have to be Maria, but she on the court, you know, specifically off the court uh, a bit as well that, you know, she just has a very pointed view as to how yeah. you should be. And there's a right way to be as a tennis professional. We've seen this in the past with her comments that are, you know, directed at Vika. Yeah, Azarenka and Rome about the injury stuff. Right, all the injury stuff. And yeah. she just took it, it was like, you know, she just took it there. Yeah. You know, and so when she when she has her sights set on you, she has no problem. She will she will she will pull the trigger. So so Courtney, do you think that Sharapova's comments about in this instance, Sharapova bringing up Patrick Mortoglu's marital situation and his kids. Mm-hmm. Do you think this was merited do you think serena and or patrick had this coming i would say no i mean i would say that if i was i think what was so surprising about being in that press conference and hearing maria go there yeah <laughs> was just that i really she's so polished in press and she's so kind of calculating and i don't mean that in a negative way she's very much she's crafted her 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 brand and her image and She's a professional. Such so a I, professional. Yeah, such a professional. And in, in a lot of ways, I admire that. And so to have her kind of drag it down to that, when she really could have just said... She could have left off the part about Patrick right. completely. She could have just been like, you know, Serena, just worry about her own personal life and not worry about anybody else's. But she made it a point to go after them. And it was in, I was joking with another writer, it was the nuclear option. It was going Chernobyl on things. It was just like, I don't have to go there, but I'm going to, and I'm willing to to reap the repercussions. I mean, and that was just what was really, really shocking about it. But but do I think that it was merited? I mean, you and I were talking about this before, about how much... We've been talking about this a lot. Yeah, we have. <laughs> but that, that it hasn't... The Serena Patrick thing is not something that's widely discussed no, in mainstream it's not. media no. at all. And I think that a lot of that is, well, I can't speak for anybody else's motivation, but I know that for my own, it's not on the table. You know, like it's never been confirmed. They talk around it. There's wink, wink. And we all know. There's a lot of wink, wink. But, you know, and it's, at the end of the day, how relevant is it? It might be relevant to people outside of tennis to the extent that it's like a an icon dating somebody. Yeah. But for me and what I need to do in terms of writing about tennis, it's just and it's not, not entirely clear that, I mean, if you're writing about the Serena Patrick coaching relationship, I think it's important to throw a wink in there. Sure. Because it's not just a pure right. coach professional thing. Absolutely. But, I mean, but in terms of bringing up his marriage, I definitely haven't done that. I and mean, I knew about the marriage. I knew yeah, that he yeah. was married. No. You know, I don't think anyone the exact timeline is completely clear to you on when obviously more Separated. No, my whatever. initial write-up when it, yeah. when those pictures hit mentioned you know, that he was married. Mentioned that he was married and yeah. he had kids. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a, that wasn't a secret. a secret. No, and anybody who was at Mortaglu's knew it because, from what I understand, like the um, his wife or ex-wife, whatever the status is, was a was a very well loved person at the academy. She was yeah. there all the time. The kids were there, and so it was. It uh, when the initial news of Serena and Patrick kind of hit the, you know, splashed across the headlines. I think people were like, whoa, um, they kind of didn't really see that coming. But Ben, talk about kind of the weird square. Yeah, it's interesting. That's it's, going it's on. interesting because, I mean, you can call this a love triangle, but it's a little bit more of a, a square or like a kite or a rhombus. I mean, everybody with the exception before today of Patrick and Maria, everybody else in this group had somebody a link to the other person, whether it's just being bitter rivals or, not bitter rivals, but, you know, primary rivals of each other, Sharapova and Serena. Serena obviously having been romantically linked to 
Dimitrov in the past, and now Mortoglu. Mortoglu was Dimitrov's coach for a long time, and they split up in timing at the end of last year, basically. Not in totally different time for when Serena started dating Patrick. And, not a, and when Grigor started dating Maria. Yeah, so the timelines of all those things don't... I don't think that those dominoes didn't touch each other. I don't think that's probably... I think it's probably fair to say there was, those were not unrelated events. So it, it's just interesting. It's a whole lot of pieces, and it's something that we haven't you know, talked about a whole lot necessarily on the show because it never became relevant, but then all of a sudden Maria Sharapova opens her Wimbledon press conference, or opens her Wimbledon tournament, rather, by bringing this stuff up. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out the next two weeks, how Serena deals with it in press, how, how Sharapova Patrick. does, if Patrick talks about it. Patrick has never been especially shy. He's never shied away from publicity. the press. Progress, yeah, or publicity, sure. So I think that's going to be... All very interesting. I do not expect Grigor to say anything about it. No. Grigor's always been very hush about it. And I'm willing to bet that Serena, too, will try to diffuse it a little bit. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting opening volley in this tournament before the, the, the play begins. Well, it gives the early part of the tournament some intrigue it probably didn't have. It very easily will be, I'm willing to bet, the best volley that Maria Sharapova hits over the fortnight. Quite possibly the most spectacular winner she's... I mean, because honestly, like when you look at it and you look at the entire situation, you look at what Serena said and then you look at what Maria said and what is on the table. Maria just... That was a kill shot. Have you seen the, the YouTube clip or you remember the, the moment from the 07 Australian Open final when Sharapova was getting killed, mm-hmm. like love five down, and she nailed Serena with the ball? Mm-hmm. And walked away, and the camera panned to Serena, who was mouthing the word bitch mm-hmm. as she walked away, and the crowd started laughing. That was this, yeah. again. Just yeah. impress. And, and so, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that, I mean, some, I saw some tweets about people saying, like, why would Maria want to fuel the fire? This and is she's going to get triple bageled in a two bagel, two, two set. This match. is what I have to say about this, and I think you're probably going to say the same thing. Sharapova has nothing to lose on court against Serena. If someone is saying, oh, Serena's going to come out there and try to kill her next time. Have you been watching their matches? <laughs> this is what's happened literally every time since um, 2005 when they had that. I'll show it's the difference semi. of like, you know, coming out with an Uzi versus coming out with an M16. doesn't matter. It's no, no, no. <laughs> you're screwed either way. So in some ways, maybe, who knows, maybe this will rattle Serena and she'll uh, be a little bit off her game. But yeah, the, the concept that it's going to get worse for Sharapova on court, I don't buy Not that. Possible. Serena, because of whatever factors, is always... Had a bit of a chip on her shoulder about Sharapova. Sharapova has made more money than her in endorsements and stuff, despite having inferior results for the most part. And all because, and from Serena's perspective, I would guess, all because Maria Just, beat her in 2004. I mean, like in terms of one of those I made you yeah. tweets, she could easily send the same one. She's been getting her back ever since yeah, for yeah. that. And conversely, Serena has the thing Sharapova wants. I mean, Serena has 16 grandstand tiles, has beaten her routinely. Yeah. I mean, there's reasons for both of them to have... Envy. Envy and a little bit of fixation about the other one. So I think that this is coming to a head. These two really have pretty much kept their guns holstered for the most part over the last decade. Not today. So and this was exciting. I'm not going to lie. It was awesome. We were really excited about We this. were. Just because, you know, I mean, you there were no... You to be interesting. Yeah, you want it to be interesting. And, and, you know, to the extent that they're dragging in their own personal laundry, like, I don't love it, you know, because I think that... Like, again, like, I would have preferred for both of them just to not have, for Serena to never have said the thing that she said that was quoted in Rolling Stone and the, for this to be a non-issue. Because I think that, you know, especially being in Britain, this is going to be, like, turned oh, as a cat yeah. fight. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's not a cat fight. It's a war of words, maybe. But don't throw this whole gender, it's a cat, rare! Like, yeah. you know, that's just going to be, the Brit tabloids are going to run with it. They're just going to keep on with it. So it was kind of the wrong country to, to for this to come up. But, this could have all happened in Miami or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it would have been fine. 
It should be interesting. It's going to be a big, it's a big stage for Judith, and Cherpova really picked her moment. Yeah. So, it's... Can it's, you see a response from Serena that would put, like, that would kind of come out on top, or is she just, her best move is to just dismiss it and play it off and, be, you know, now take the high road and uh, yeah, what's, just make what's it a non-issue? Yeah, what Serena's is an interesting question, what her move is. I think unless she has something, unless she really wants to go there... She can go scoreboard? Score, well, she can go scoreboard, definitely. I think that's almost, I think that's almost mandatory that she goes scoreboard on some level. I mean, she's like, I would be upset if I lost less 13 <laughs> times in a row, too. Unless she has something really nasty she wants to say about the guy with the black heart. It's entirely possible she has something on her chest about Dimitrov that we don't know about. Yeah, Who knows? From, I mean, from what I understand, I mean, it's this is this is about Serena versus Maria, yeah. and 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 Grigor is really not caught a pawn. In the crossfire. Yeah, he's just caught in the crossfire, and um, and I think that my pure gossipy speculation is that Serena takes much offense to the fact that Grigor goes and dates the one girl who she sees as her off-court rival, yeah. who is the hot blonde. I mean, all of the insecurities that I think kind of Serena has. And I think that's where that black heart comment comes in. Because if you really, I mean, within tennis, if you talk to him a lot, just based on his personality and how he handles himself, no one would ever describe Grigor that way. Black heart is not something that comes to mind. He's a good kid. I mean, he's he's a kid. As far as we know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, as as far as we know, know, for sure. That's generally the gossip that I hear, is that he's a good guy. He's just a guy, you know, for for Serena to describe him assuming she was describing him as such. It's it's not about Grigor, it's about Maria. Definitely. So we spent a good <laughs> half an hour talking about that, which is pretty much what we wanted to do. Uh, yeah. This will be an extended pre-Wimbledon episode. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Serena, a lesser Bless. extent, supporting role. Yeah, so this should be a fun, fun time. Yeah. So before all of this happened on Saturday, we had pretty interesting weeks ourselves in our two various locations. Courtney, why don't we start with you? You okay. were down... On the British coast, mm-hmm. on the channel, watching some ladies in tennis and men. So I guess now there is at Eastbourne as well. Talk about what things were like by the sea in windy old Eastbourne. All mostly describing <laughs> the spectators. Yes. It, it, I always really enjoy my, my week in Eastbourne. I, I always do it before Wimbledon. Uh, I say always as though I've been doing this for 30 years. Three years. Right? Three years. Yeah, three years in Eastbourne, three years at Wimbledon. But I enjoyed it. It's a, it's a nice, quiet lead-up. Um, it's a small town, you know, and, and at the same time, it gets a very good feel for the WTA to where you can actually, you know, go talk to people. And yeah. so, you know, I got to do a one-on-one with Lina, with Aga, with, I don't know, a bunch of other people, Petra, uh, Laura. So so that was all good. Yeah. But obviously the story out of Eastbourne was one Jamie Lee Hampton. Talk about Jamie Lee Hampton. As someone who's followed you on Twitter, if someone, if anyone, anyone who listens to the show follows you on both your Forty Deuce account and your Beyond the Baseline account, I think it's probably fair to say, Courtney, they would have seen somewhere upwards of about eighty or ninety tweets about Jamie Hampton this week. Eighty or ninety. Someone can someone go through. We're asking someone to audit Courtney <laughs> on this. Someone goes through and counts the Jamie Hampton references this week. We, I'd love a number to back that up. I have a feeling I'm probably right. What? It's made Jamie Hampton stand out to you. What if people don't get the Jamie Hampton thing? Sure. Sell Jamie Hampton to us as a as a thing. Yes. Um. I mean, I've I've been on the Jamie Hampton train for a while, mainly because of. Her, I mean, it initially started from her game. Yeah. Just watching her play, she played. She plays a different type of tennis than than you see on the women's side. And Roz Sitar, who is on Twitter and also was writing for Tennis Panorama uh-huh. uh, last week in, in Eastbourne, had a really interesting observation. She was like, she kind of looked at me. She's like, Moresmo. And I was like, 
I can see that a little bit in terms of her game. There's, yeah. there's kind of, you know, that flair, um, that willingness to come to the net, the good hands, the athlete, the pure jockish athleticism. Yeah, the strut a little bit. Yeah, the strut, all these sorts of things. So I kind of liked that a little bit. And, and Jamie was like, oh, I think there's a little bit of Hannon too. And I was like, okay. But uh-huh. um, I don't know about that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no. I, so I really just liked her game and, and stuff like that. And then it wasn't until, though, Indian Wells this year when she gave a press conference where she basically <laughs> tried to convince the media that she was boring. And essentially not worth talking about. And not worth talking about. She's just like, I'm really boring. Like, no, really, I'm boring. That I somehow it charmed me. I know that it, based on reading Steve Tigner's pieces around the time, that it kind of charmed him as well. She just kind of has this no-nonsenseness about her that seems to kind of stand out on the WTA tour. She's not trying to be a thing. She's not trying to be a thing. She just wants to play tennis and she's a tennis nerd and she just wants to do that. So, so those two things combined have kind of made her this weird, at least to me, kind of a cult player. Like when Jamie Hampton plays, Jamie Hampton plays a match. I want to go watch it because I enjoy her tennis and I kind of want her to be a thing because she's her own. Well, yeah, exa- I mean, a, a little bit is that, I mean, yeah. that's precisely right. It's like, you think you're boring and you want to just fly under the radar and like, no, you're now the number three American, Jamie. You're ranked in the top 25. You're going to be seated at the U.S. Open. Like, you're a thing. She's the number three American, and definitely, uh, we can talk a brief draw preview. It's unfortunate that Hampton drew Sloan Stevens in the first round of Wimbledon, which is crazy. I mean, first of all, they're going to be two top 25 players next week. And secondly, they're the number two and three Americans. So when anyone's talking about how many Americans are left in the tournament, as inevitably happens in second round, third round. Huge, huge asterisk on the women's side because those are two of really the best American uh, hopefuls of this tournament, and one of them's going to knock the other one out at the very opening stage. And both who are in good form, you know, both made the fourth round of the French. Sloan hasn't played since then, but she made the third round here last year. Practicing well when I saw her this week. Yeah, she was. So well, that's good. And and obviously Jamie coming in with like what eight wins. Yeah, it's a qualifier. Nine matches on grass. So. You know, she, you got to like their chances. So that it's 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 really unfortunate. Unfortunate draw for for American tennis for sure. It'll be a good match. Hopefully, it gets put on. I'm sure it'll be on TV Corp. Hopefully, it gets some good coverage. Yeah. ESPN should treat it like a big event because it is the two and three in America playing each other at the big tournament. So yes, that was uh, good for Eastbourne. Any other Eastbourne things about the sights and sounds of Eastbourne? The sights and sounds of Eastbourne. Rory McIlroy was yeah. there. Um, How was Caroline this week to yeah. deal with? Caroline was Caroline. I mean, she's she's just in this kind of phase right now where she's giving very generic answers and, and she's a little bit over it. Yeah. No, that that's actually a really good way to describe it. I mean, obviously she's, um, yeah, even when you try and pay her a compliment, she's just kind of really dismissive. She's just kind of just seems like she wants to do her thing and she's kind of over the whole sunshine. I want to be a thing thing. Yeah. And she just wants to like go about her business, which I respect and that's fine. But you know, it can be a bit frustrating. Lee Na was, was, and Aga were kind of, I talked to them one-on-one, and they were fine. They weren't exactly brimming with confidence. Uh-huh. So there was that. And, um, but for the most part, I mean, I was, I was really impressed by Jamie. Obviously, Vizanina won the tournament, um, and she played really, really well um, in two matches that, that were in really rough conditions. But the match of the tournament was was Hampton's win over Wozniacki in two hours and 44 minutes. So. And semifinal. So that was yeah, a good, good week for you there. Yeah, no, I it's uh, it's Eastbourne. I mean, there's there's never going to be a whole tremendous amount of gossip, but uh, you know, it's fun. And how was Roehampton, Ben? Roehampton was pretty solid. Um, I went. I decided to do Wimbledon qualities. I always try to do qualities. Every time I go to a slam, I've done it pretty much every time in Australia. I always get there early. 
and do qualifying. New York, I go to New York early and do qualifying. Yeah, so I always really enjoy it. A Roehampton is unique of the four slams in that we call it Roehampton. It's held at a different facility in the Grand Slam. All the other ones are held on the slam courts at the slam facility. Roehampton is held at the Bank of England Club, which is where the headquarters of the LTA and the ITF are, same on that same sort of campus. And it's really not designed for spectators whatsoever. The fields, it's, it's essentially a big field with lines drawn on it. It's a grass court. You know, grass is grass. So it's a big field with little fences and, you know, courts. And there's these little narrow aisles between the courts. And ten of them are in a row. And they have backdrops you can't see through. So you really have to kind of, like, walk out there and feel really intrusive, really, when you're out there trying to watch, I don't know, I was watching Philip Pellowo play. And you're, like, two feet from him when you're watching him. And you're at eye level with him because you're standing because there's no chairs. So it's very... It's really kind of strange. And while you're watching him, you have your back to some other matches going on behind you. So it's really not designed for people. I've talked to people who work, you know, around the tournament and say they're not really promoting it as a spectator event. They don't publicize it. They don't really design it to have capacity. There's barely any, like, bathrooms or, like, concession stands or anything that, you know, things that tournaments need in order to house the public. And it's very, very hard to get to. It's nowhere near any public transportation. So it's, it's a bit of a black hole that way. But... That also makes it a pretty sort of raw environment to watch people battling in all white to get into uh, with Wimbledon. So that was sort of cool and saw a bunch of good tennis. I love watching grass court tennis. It's my favorite service to watch by far because it really um, does not allow for passiveness or laziness or directionlessness. So it's, it's, I think it brings out the best in everybody's game, especially like I find like clay quarters more enjoyable to watch on grass because they kind of get they can't do their whole pushing, retrieving things. So some of the Spanish guys actually were playing really well there. Uh, Dan Evans, I saw. He was a British. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before. Dan Evans, um, I've never seen him play before, but he was having absolute meltdown against uh, Daniel Munoz de la Nava. Had five names and one in three sets. Evans melting down. And Evans just kind of, I mean, you can see, just watching him on court, like all the off-court problems that people say about him are clearly not baseless. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah he was, he was like, won a set and he like, was running off the court to celebrate and, you know, gave his friend, like, a poke on the butt on his way to the bathroom and stuff. He was, like, sort of giggling and having a good time and when afterwards when he was walking to his uh, doubles, he was drinking a Coke, a can of Coke in one hand and holding a spare Coke in the other hand because he needed, you know, two Cokes, obviously, to get through a tennis match. Not most people do that. Um, yeah, so it was good and Americans actually did really well. Four Americans got through. So... That was who, good. Who were you? Was there a match or a performance that, or a player that really surprised you or, or impressed mm-hmm. you? Or uh, in mo- a bad and good way? The most sort of entertaining player for me was Philip Pellowo, who only made his second round. But he's an incredible monologuer. That's the thing. That's the cool thing about being like that close. You can hear everything everyone says. And there was some unbelievable profanity from everybody involved. <laughs> Literally everybody was screaming ten days. No one got any warning. So it was nice that I yeah. saw anyway. Meanwhile, over in Eastbourne, Laura Robson laid down a cuss word, one cuss word in the entire match, uh-huh. and the BBC mics picked it up. Uh-huh. So clearly in her post-match press conference, she was asked about it, and she was like, well, I guess I won't swear. And then at the same time, uh, the BBC, as she left the court, uh, the BBC cameras caught like this old lady like leaning over holding a program, and she walked right past her. Uh-huh. And uh, so the question was, like, if we, you know, you didn't sign autographs as you left the court. After a loss. After, after a loss, which no one really does. It's very rare. Very rare. And, and shouldn't, then, I, I honestly, I mean, this is a different, different bit of sidebar. Shouldn't be expected. No, no. And also, Caroline was giving her on-court interview. Like, it's kind of the loser's job to get off the court and cede the stage, the stage to the winner. Um, but it, then it turns out that Rob's Laura had signed, like, 200 autographs. 
from outside center court back to the locker room. But obviously BBC cameras didn't pick that up. But it's just kind of the double standard and the weirdness of the whole cussing in sport just cracks me up. Either you crack down on it or you don't. Because heaven forbid that an athlete competing for like tens of thousands of dollars should drop an F-ball. Yeah. (laughs) These are big matches with people, especially at qualifying. These are very, very high stakes things. Even bigger than than main draw. So much. I mean, I I was talking to uh, some people about it afterwards. People who lost in the third round were talking about it, about who's injured and trying to get lucky loser spots. Seeing who, if I had heard anything about people who might be pulling out and stuff. Because it's a huge difference, money-wise, if nothing else, and especially now. Actually, Wimbledon's pretty good. Wimbledon gives a fair amount of money to people who make the final round of qualities. They get 12,000 pounds, which is about $18,000, which is pretty solid. I don't think you can complain about that. You get to first round of main draw, though, you get 38,000. So that's a huge, huge bump. You would love to have somebody pull out and get your name drawn first in the uh, Lucky Loser Lottery. So that was interesting. And it's just, yeah, it's interesting, sort of um, very raw place to, have to witness a sport logistically not the best obviously um for watching you just get tired standing up the whole yeah. time and there's it's on the grass when you sit down you can't see because there's a little fence so can't sit on the ground even and then for writing purposes i was based out of the next door building which they put up gave us a little conference room i say us it was only me there doing <laughs> us, I mean, if, me myself and i if, if someone else had wanted to come they would have worked in this room and there were women on website staff which were also on the adjacent room too room they gave us was in the building for the LTA National Training Center, which I had never been to before. And I admit that I've not been to most of the insides of the USTA one, so I can't completely compare. But holy wow, <laughs> this place was jaw-dropping. And Courtney, I know you've been there before, I too. Have, yeah. what, what did you make of it when you were there? When you first walk in, it looks like a spa retreat. Uh-huh. It kind of has that weird zen thing going on, like and like a lot of exposed wood and gravel in the front, and you know it looks like a little like a lot of glass walls everywhere. Glass walls are like, very modern. Yeah, um, and then you walk in, and then when you walk into the indoor courts, it's just really nice courts and facilities, and they have housing on site. Oh, for, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So like, if like coaches need housing, like if for some of the players who have like foreign coaches. They can like stay in the housing that's on site. Wow. They're, they can eat there as well. I mean, it's it's a ridiculous facility. It's an unbelievable. There's a beautiful gym. There's like a yoga room. There's yeah. a Bikram yoga room. I mean, they have oh. separate, you know, I mean, it's it's insane. And it is one of those things where sometimes as an American, obviously, I see a lot of the critiques of the LTA from the British press yeah. about, oh, you have so much money and you can't like create, you know, generate talent and things like that. And you actually see it up close though. You can it's understand, really yeah, you can really understand why there is this disconnect of like, how can you possibly have this much money in these facilities and use it like this? And have one top 200 player on the men's side. I mean, there were these numbers for the, like the conference room I was in, uh, where the normal like sign would be like saying like conference room, instead of being like a normal placard on the wall. It was a mounted tablet computer that, like, displayed the time <laughs> and showed you, like, what the next meeting schedule for that room was. And it's just, like, such an unbelievably frivolous waste of money. You're like, we could have nothing there, but let's put a tablet computer there because we have Dude, all this extra money. I, I found, I mean, one of the most flabbergasting things that I remember with this kind of learning a few years ago about the LTA yeah. is that their company cars are BMWs. <laughs> Like, and they like, and they like, if you work for the LTA and you have like a reason to use the car, like you have to like go drive to Birmingham because you have to like go man a booth Uh at Birmingham, you get a BMW. Not bad. I'm just like, 
Holy crap. Like, that is not even corporate firms, like, allow that sort of, so like, expenditure. Now, part of that, to be said, is that there is, there is I think, I'm pretty sure there's a BMW LTA kind of tie-in. Okay. So Sponsor, there's going to sure. be, yeah, there's some sort of sponsorship there. So that's, but still, like, still. optics, I can understand why the optics are so bad for the LTA. Seriously, I would really, really just say, having been there now... I don't know how long exactly their facilities have been quite so posh and opulent. I think it's a fairly long time. But if they don't have, like, if they are not the tennis power of, like, the next 30 years, they're doing something seriously, seriously well, wrong. And, and, and that's the thing. I, that's the thing. I mean, like, the critique is these people are all very coddled and stuff. And God, yes, they are coddled. Talk about being from somewhere where you don't feel hungry. You don't feel hungry when you get a BMW when you want it. You don't feel hungry when there's, you know, an iPad flashing on the wall saying that it's, you know, 6 o'clock. These things are just so over the top, and I think that, like I said, I have not been to the USCA facility equivalent. I don't, I can't imagine it's quite the same. I've heard that the Australia one is very, is very nice too. But I've heard the Australian one is more nice in terms of things like ice baths and stuff that seem a little bit more practical or have a, have a real purpose. Um, this one. No, the NTC is is something else. And uh, yeah, you really do kind of understand that like, I was thinking about it earlier this week that like, for example, at the time when I was thinking about it, Jamie Hampton's ranked four spots below Laura Robson. Yeah. Right? Jamie Hampton can probably walk around Auburn, Alabama, her hometown, and be completely anonymous. Yep. Right? Laura can't stand on a platform here without somebody recognizing her or something like that. Yeah. And like when you take... And she, you know, they're about ranked the same. And now, you know, Jamie's obviously ranked ahead. But when you kind of start to consider, like, that's where, that's what we're talking about here in terms of, like, rankings. The the people who get to use, the players who get to use this facility are not players that any of us would know. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, Andy obviously uses the NTC to hit. Laura uses the NTC to hit. Watson, Bally, Keonthavon. But also legions of people outside the top 500. Yes. And there are a lot of British players and qualities. I was talking a little bit with Tumani, who is also mm-hmm. qualifying. Tumani, also known as Footfall on Twitter. And we were talking about the just basic, basic notion of the plucky Brit. You know, there's this, this plucky Brit is a sort of very qualities concept where this valiant Brit goes out there, tries his, his or her hardest, puts on a good show, loses, and oh, they gave it a good shot for Old England, didn't they? That is not a concept we have in American. America, there is or no American. such thing as a plucky, a American. plucky American. No, either you you're a win winner or you're a loser, or you lose. And we don't have the same sort of way of spinning failure that they do. And so, it's, I mean, obviously, which part, is cruel. That's not necessarily no, saying that it's it, fair, but it's part just of how, it. Is, that's how they have to manage reality because if they were actually looking at things with American expectations and their results, obviously minus Andy Murray. I know we have one on Grand Slam on the men's side in 10 years, whatever. But yeah, if they were actually treating these people, you know, holding the same standards, they would go insane because they really just don't have the results. And it's interesting to see if the, it's interesting to, you know, debate how much the NTC is hurting more than it's helping. It's, I mean, it's interesting insofar as if you look at the top three Brits. On the men's side? No, just generally. Okay. So Andy Mm -hmm. wasn't an LTA product. Nope. He went to go train in Valencia. Yep. Valencia or Barcelona? Valencia. Barcelona. Yeah. Barcelona, okay. Uh, but he, he oh, left. Look at you not knowing your Andy Murray trivia. Sorry, I'm a little rusty on my moose knowledge. Um, but yes, so so Andy Murray, obviously, <laughs> uh-huh. like was not an LTA product. Yeah. Also coming from Scotland and stuff and yeah. not having the facilities up there. Laura Robson, not an LTA product. Nope. 
um, kind of private coaching and then went off to more toddlers and has had like outside coaching ever since. Yep. Although does use the facilities to the extent that she's in London. Yep. She will train at the NTC. Heather Watson, Volatarys. Yep. Yeah. So what are we talking about here? And and if you talk to Andy Murray, he will say this. Yeah. That it's that the one of the, the problems with British tennis is that you do have to go. You have to scatter your seeds a little bit. Mm-hmm. You and really... you have to go where the training is. And and this is what's one thing that the Americans will bring up. You have to go where the competition is. The Americans so, are all a cluster for that reason. They all join together and go to the USA facilities to be around each other. And I had an interesting one-on-one with uh, Varvara Lepchenko in Rome. Mm-hmm. And she obviously still trains up in New York yeah. at the USTA Center. New- Not with Mikhail anymore, oh, though, Mikhail because Mikhail left. Interesting. So Which now she- weakens New York as a place for her. Exactly. Yeah. That's what she said. She said, you know, it's, it's hard because I don't have people to kind of compete against. Uh-huh. Whereas you look down in Boca, Hampton, Keys, like, you know, like uh, Burdett, well, Burdett, well, but they're all in Florida. Yeah. They can easily like pair up yeah. and play against each other and compete and train together. Shelby Rogers. Shelby Rogers, people. Taylor Townsend. Like you, you yeah. kind of have a Boca mentality a little bit more. Guys too in Saddlebrook. I mean, mm-hmm. you see them, they all cluster together. Isner, Blake, uh, Smichek, Kuznetsov, all these guys live in the same basic area down there and train with each other. And yeah, it really does help. And if the Brits don't have anybody uh, to help them, I mean, if Dan Evans is there by himself practicing with people with people, with who, people who are way right, better than way him. better than that's not going to help him grow. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's why Nisha Corey made it out of Asia and became a success from that tennis desert. Really, men's tennis. There's nothing ever been anybody really from East Asia who's done that well yeah. in his generation. Anyway, he went to Florida and trained there. And Novak got the Djokovic left Serbia to go yeah. train in Nikki Pilic's academy in Germany. I mean, it's. And, you, you know, you go. see it everywhere. JJ, yeah. leaves Serbia to go train at Volteri yep. and gets her ass kicked by Sharapova all the time. But hey, yep. she's probably a better player for it. Definitely. You know, Definitely. so, yeah, I mean, I as I've kind of been around the LTA a little bit more, I understand, I have a better grasp of the LTA critique, which always is like a British writing. British, British writers British are obsessed with the LTA yeah. in a way that we are not with the USTA. And you kind of get it. And you see it up close more. I yeah. definitely get it more now. That's right. Let's talk about Wimbledon. Oh, that Wimbledon. Is there a tournament this week? There is a tournament starting oh, on Monday. Um, no idea. There are some players playing in it. Is it? Is it a pretty good field? Pretty decent field, I think. Solid. Yeah, a couple minuses. I mean, Thomas Bellucci's not playing. Shit. I know, right? Ugh. So, also Venus and Kuznetsova. Yeah, but mostly oh, Bellucci. Okay. Mostly Bellucci. Yes. That. Obviously. Uh, so that was the first lucky loser to get in. So we'll see how many more there are. Speaking mm-hmm. of lucky losers, let's talk about the draw in fairly big picture terms. Mm-hmm. Start with the men. That's where more of the draw discussion mm-hmm. was, and deservedly so. Obviously, the big topic, which I haven't really talked about before, was the seating of Rafael Nadal. Uh, Courtney, yeah. what did you think should have happened with Rafael Nadal, who was left as the fifth seed by the Wimbledon formula. Not just the rankings. Some people are saying rankings, no. but the formula spit out the same thing. Sure. What do you think? Um, I'm not losing sleep over the fact that Rafael Nadal is seated fit. I think that, you know, that's fair. Whatever. I get it. You have a formula. You applied it. He was fit. Okay. But there is a part of me that thinks, you know, Wimbledon, you like to be different. You like to think that you, you, you know, the All England Club has full control over its tournament. Yep. You have deviated from the rankings in the past, provided bumpings back when the seating, there was a seating committee as opposed to the formula, all these sorts of things. I can't think there was anything stopping them other than, I mean, there was not, you know. It was just they didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Right. And that's basically, I think, a little bit cowardly at the expense of common sense in this case. Mm-hmm. I think that really, really, I think that seating, I 
come from America where, you know, we have the March Madness tournament where there is a seating committee that sits in a room and comes up and orders all the teams, one through 64, essentially, and says, this is who's most likely to win. And you pair up based on likeliness to win, not on who's earned it. I don't like this pairing of seedings and earning it. Ferrer may have earned the fourth most points over the last 12 months, but I don't think anybody thinks he is the fourth most likely to win this tournament. I think that would be a really, really... I'm sure the odds don't say that. He's not even sixth. No, I'm sure the odds don't put him at fourth. So I say, why not reflect reality? Move Nadal up. Move up to number four. You could even argue for higher, but I think four is as high as we need to go for him because he is number one in the race rankings for 2013. Won seven titles out of nine tournaments and made two other finals. And a two-time Wimbledon champion. He's proven that he can win this tournament. Yeah, two-time Wimbledon champion. He's made the finals five of the last six times he's played Wimbledon. Ferrer, meanwhile, has never made it past the quarters. So really, there's once. no. Yeah. Did he make the quarters? And that was last year. Yeah. So really, I don't know what we're talking about with that. I think that people. I think that yeah, the slams all have discretion, not just Wimbledon. Slams all have discretion to change seedings. I think they should do it more often. I think that it was really not fair to not only Serena but the field that she didn't get bumped up at 2011 U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. She was on a tear and ranked 28th, seeded 28th, and she would have gotten one of the top eight seeds in the third round. And if that had been Caroline Wozniacki, who was number one at that point, who got her in the third round, that would have been hugely unfair to Wozniacki because she had earned a top spot, quote-unquote, and sort of deserved a smoother road deep in the tournament because points and money is based on how far you go. It's not winner-take-all. There's steps along the way that you sort of should have a path to. And she wound up, and Serena wound up drawing into Azarenka, who she beat in the third round, and then Azarenka was out. And Azarenka went on to win the next Grand Slam and clearly could have done probably a lot better at the U.S. Open had she not drawn Serena. So I think there just should be a high thing on common sense. Also, make seeds interesting. There's this big... There's Every single time seeds come out for a tournament, there's like a wire story, like seeds released, and they're never interesting. Make them interesting. Make it an event that's worth talking about. Why not? Spice it up a little bit. It really won't hurt the competition. No. You, as Wimbledon, as the All England Club, you take great pride in the fact that you are separate and apart from the other three. In this aspect. Well, in In all aspects. In all aspects. You take, you know, like the championships, no matter what happens with the other three slams ever... The championships are the championships, yeah. and that's, I mean... They're, it's called the championships, not the, not the British Open. No, no, no. It, it, it's the championships. Yeah. And so, do what you want, seed it the way you want, and make it an event worth watching. Yeah. And I'm just not entirely convinced, I mean, obviously we get a fed, a, a, assume, if yeah. the numbers hold, uh-huh. that you get a fed in the Nadal quarterfinal, and then possibly the winner plays Murray in the semis, and then a whoever with Novak. I mean, that's all grand and good. But I just kind of, I mean, I'm 51-49 on it, but I just, I'm like, you know what? Just bump him. Just, just, because on top of that, like, let's not have this whole freaking discussion about, oh, Rafa should have been fourth and how can he possibly be fourth, uh, or I'm sorry, fifth behind the guy who he just demolished at the French Open, who's never made the court, past the quarterfinal. I mean, like, just in terms of tennis storylines. It sets up Ferrer for criticism leaving him up there, too. Yeah. In the same way... It's not fair to him. No, it's not fair to him, I don't think. I, I mean, obviously, he's probably happy being the number four seed. And it really hurts the draw. Let's look at the Ferrer quarter a little bit. Who is <laughs> in the section? Do we have to? Do we there have are to? Some, luckily, for the integrity of the draw, there are at least some interesting names in the Ferrer quarter. The other seed is Del Potro, who really hasn't played well lately. He's been out with injury. I would be surprised a little bit if he 
was able, was able to make the quarters and then the semi. Someone's going to make the semi out of this section. But there are some decent other names. Nishikori, Dimitrov, uh, Cole Schreiber is probably actually my pick to make the semis out of this section. Cole Schreiber really, really lucked out here. Yeah. And so I think that's my pick to make it. And Ronich is in there too. Uh, Milos Ronich, Ronich, but he's been playing bad. Same with Dolgopolov, who also could put things together but hasn't been anything good lately. So big opportunity for everybody in here. And it's just sort of, it's ridiculous you could have a Dimitrov Cole Schreiber quarter at the same tier of the tournament as Federer and Nadal. Ugh. Yeah, really. It's so. just, you know, it's just, it's just hard. It's hard to, you, I don't know. I mean, it, it, you want the competition to be pure and you want it like, yeah, I get the argument of like, if you're going to win the title, then you win the title regardless of who's put in front of you. Yeah. But, I mean, you also want a good sporting event. Yeah. You know? Definitely. I mean, and so to the extent that you are the All England Club and you take great pride in the fact that you do things the right way, or at least they think they do, right? Yeah. You do things the right way and you, you give them the bump, split the four up, yeah. and let's do this. Let, let's throw down over the course of that. But to, to I, I don't like Federer and Nadal meeting in the quarters. No. I don't like the idea that either Rafa or Roger, Roger defending champion, Rafa French Open champion who's dominant, both of these two people are going to have to go through three of the big four to win the title. Yeah, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's, that's not, that doesn't seem right. No. So, yeah, let's talk about the draw big picture. Basically, Djokovic lucked out and got on the rare half. He also got the easier quarterfinal opponents. Uh, oh, the other, this, the five through eight seeds he got are better. Um, he got Del Potro, who's been hurt on the Ferrer section, and Burditch, who has a very good head-to-head against there. He's a little bit of a tricky opener, and it's Florian Meyer, who's a very, very tough unseeded player, the highest-ranked unseeded player, actually, in the tournament, gets the number one seed, which really must not be all big for. That really sucks for Florian Meyer more than anything. Mm-hmm. But Florian Meyer lost pretty routinely in Djokovic quarters last year, so no upset alert there. Tommy Haas is in the Djokovic 16th. It could prove tricky, but after that, Best really five, should be... No, after that, really, really should be smooth sailing for Djokovic to the final. Yep. And so he gets it after there. Let's look at the bottom half. What do you think is going to happen with Nadal, Federer, and Murray? Who, do you have any sense of... And Sanga also in the, in the Murray section. Can anything shake this up? Do you think that Murray is a lock to the uh, semis? I think Murray is a lock to the semis. Yeah. I don't think that Sanga is going to pull off the upset. And then it would be... My guess is obviously Murray versus Nadal in the semis. Okay. A lot of... I mean, I'm tempted to pick Rafa in that match if it happens. But at the same time, it just really depends on what Rafa has to do to get there. Yeah. I... I, I Sorry, Rafa fans or whatever, or non-Rafa fans who seem to be pissed at me because I'm constantly, like, harping on his health. But he has played a shitload of matches since February. He's played so much. He's played nine tournaments and made it to the final of all of them. Exactly. And he really... That has to catch up with him at some point. That was yeah. my one question to him in press today. It was like, how are, you, how are you holding up, and do you think you'll be able to keep playing the rest of the year with how much you've played? And he didn't... He said, we'll see, essentially. Because he really has front-loaded his schedule in a way... That was a bit of a cash grab, honestly, in terms of how much he well, played in South grab. America. And a point it's all, grab. It's all, it's all clay. Yeah. yeah, it's all clay. So he, uh, he's done that very, very full so far. And I'd be surprised, you know, if he wound up playing more than one of, let's say, Shanghai, Paris, and London, the World Tour Finals. You think he'll play more? I'd be surprised if he played more than one of those three. Okay. That's, that's the, my weird way of putting it. Okay. All right. So, anyway if his knees really do sort of break down on him, as he was very interestingly impressed today, he was very clear in saying that he shouldn't have played the tournament last year because he was too hurt. 
and that he was feeling so much suffering. Um, that's his big word, suffering. It's very Catholic of him. He said that he did throw in something that Russell might have beaten him anyway, even if he hadn't been hurt, but it was an interesting sort of setting, making sure the narrative is clear on why he lost last year, I thought. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it that strongly. I mean, I think that, that Rafa definitely, I think that his comments today were about as clear and as, as explicit as he's ever been in terms of saying, I was hurt last year at Wimbledon. Yeah. Like, let's be clear about that. Yeah. But he did throw in the, like, but Russell played a ridiculous fifth set, and, you know, even if I was healthy, I probably wouldn't have been able to win. So it was a, bit, a little bit of, like, having your cake and eating it, too. Yeah, like, definitely. you know, like, I was injured, but I probably would have lost anyway, but I was injured. Yeah. I mean, that was effectively yeah, that's his exactly answer. what it was. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a Marina Dahl semifinal would be really, really interesting to me. I, I, that'd be really, really tough to call. From now, yeah. like maybe it's easier once we get closer and we see form and we, you know, and there is still the possibility that Rafa gets knocked out early. Yeah. He hasn't played a, a grass warm up other than in Hurlingham, I guess. Today. I don't think it's impossible also that Federer beats Nadal. I think yeah. it could happen. Could. I don't think that's, I, we'll get to that when we, we'll do another show before the quarter. Sure, sure, sure. Hopefully happen. But if he beats Nadal, I don't see him beating Murray. No. I think it will take a, a Federer Herculean. Be, Federer could not beat all three of them, no, that's for can't. sure. He can't do it. I don't think he can beat two. So, you know, so if, you know, I don't, unless he beats Rafa like six love, six one, six two in like but an even hour then, and a half. Even then that's mentally exhausting, having to play Rafa that early. It's very hard for Federer to come up. I don't think he has ever in his career beaten, well, he hasn't that many chances to, to play him early in a slam. I don't think, no one last time this Federer. This is as early as he would have faced him at a slam. Yeah. I don't course. think Federer's never beaten him at a slam and then won another match. He's never had to do that. So mm. we'll see. That's interesting. That's an odd way of looking at it, but it's true. Women's side, the draw obviously is probably not as interesting just because Serena. It's Serena. I mean, Serena, 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 is, Serena. It's Serena versus the field in a way that really is. I mean, it was a bit of a. There are some caveats about that. The French, because Serena hadn't done well with the French, and so many ghosts of Roland Garros and Rosano, and blah, 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 blah. But at Wimbledon, unless all this controversy that we spent the first half of our show talking about really throws her off, it's tough to see Serena getting. Knocked out early. The one name in her section might be worth paying any attention to is the number 23 seed, Sabina Lasicki, who has beaten the French Open champion, champion in her last three Wimbledon appearances. Serena is French Open champion, so that's a little bit of a weird streak there. Also, I mean, Zhang Zhe in the second round could be a little bit tricky, but Serena should be very ready for that to be tricky. Took her to three sets, uh, extra innings last year. Yeah, so that was, that was very tough, but I think that... It could be a hard thing for Zhang Zhe to replicate. Um, well, and also Zhang Zhe is not in the form that she, no. this year she was last year. No, so. she played okay against Sharapova at the French, Zhang Zhe, but uh, like a six one seven five kind of okay. So those are those are the names there. Um, Kerber is in that quarter. This, that should all be very routine for Serena. The other first round match that jumps out. Let's talk about the. We talked about the Hampton Stevens first round match, but also the British girls got killed by the draw. I mean, I will say that I think that obviously, I think that Heather has a chance obviously to beat Madison. Yeah. Just because the matchup of Heather being somebody who gets the extra ball back and Madison being a bit of a hitter if Madison's off problems. But I do think that that Heather is in a bit of a spot because she's still coming back. Yeah. You know, she's not at her her best. Definitely. But then Laura Robson gets Maria Kirilenko first round, which is just a brutal draw for Laura because that's somebody she's probably not going to beat. Fair to say. Yeah. But it's also someone who she also won't get a lot of slack for losing to. Right. No, it'll be like Laura Robson loses to this random Russian that none of us has heard about, but is in the top 10. Yeah. <laughs> but know? she must be good because she's in the top 10, but however, it's still very disappointing for Britain. Yeah. Because you know? Britain's number one loses to like a, a player we don't know. 
Yeah. Channel. So that's tough for her. I so this, say. this actually, this section, uh, Radvanska is Serena's possible, Serena's possible semifinal. She's in the section there with Lina. There's also uh, Mona Barrel, Pavlyuchenkova, Petrova in there. But I think Radvanska or Lee is probably most likely to make it out of there. Then we have in the bottom half a section that includes the Sloan Stevens Jamie Hampton match we talked about. Winner possibly get Petkovic, which is an interesting little high profile section of the draw there. Even if Petkovic really has never been much for grass whatsoever. She hates the grass. She hates the grass, <laughs> but she was actually seeming pretty chipper on it when I saw her practicing this week Good. with uh, Ivanovic. They're actually surprisingly business like, which I shouldn't say about pro athletes, but they really seem very focused um, out there and determined and clearly both kind of not happy with how they're playing. So that makes them more so. Yeah, Sharapova's in that next quarter. Pretty decent draw for her. Mladenovic is a tough first round, but after that after it gets that, decent. And Bartoli, if Bartoli starts streaking, well. but Bartoli's playing bad, then she gets a pretty easy quarterfinal, but whoever comes out of there, then she's into the semis against presumably Azarenka, unless Petra Kvitova gets back on the rails and finds her form at Wimbledon. A lot of ifs here. And if she's playing well, she does have a very good head to against Azarenka, but it's been a long time since they played. Azarenka's a way better player than she was back when Kvitova owned her. But that could be, that'd be one I would sit down for, for sure, that Oh, match. for sure. I mean, it, it's a match that we've been wanting for, for two All years. All the 2012 did not have a Kvitova as a match, That's and that was That's the match a everybody wanted. That was yeah. two number three. That was two versus three. That was, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and it never happened. Could have been that I'll show you up in the final last, in 2012. And we should say that last year, Petra came into Wimbledon sucking. And played well. And she, that match against Serena was just match of my the year, heaven. I think. Match of the year. It was women. my heaven. Yeah. It just was pure offensive grass court tennis at its finest. And Petra held her own. I mean, that I can still see the point that she duffed uh, to get to earn a break point. That she just, a uh, backhand that she knocked into the net. But I loved that match. Yeah, so, so she can't. I mean, we know Petra. But she, she has a tough draw. Petra, actually, now that I'm looking at it. She has Shvedova, possibly second round. Yeah. Famously gold and set it here last year. Obviously, obviously been shaky, but who hasn't? Uh, Makarova is a very good grass player, mm-hmm. although she's mostly good in cities and, and in Bourne, people say. <laughs> she has a bit of a Bourne supremacy about her career. Ivanovic, I see, if Ivanovic is going to make it through, it's going to be more as a vulture, I think. Carla and Laborda can make it through. I think Carla can do something. On grass? Yeah. No. Yes. No. no. Yes. If, if do something means make it to the fourth round, absolutely not. No. She I'm can't get past Ivanovic. She can beat Dominguez Lino and the winner of Arvidsson Lucic Baroni, but she's <laughs> not going to make it past. Ivanovic, no, no. You're picking, you're picking Carla over Ivanovic. Long pause. Sure. All right, there we go. Why, <laughs> Why not? not? And, and Elena Yankovic is also in the Azarenka section. Um, better grass core player than people give her credit for, probably, but probably unlikely to make it past Vika. So there we go. Are you saying that Vika's going to get past Bally in the second round? Is that what you're saying? You were saying you were telling me um, from Eastbourne that Valtacha has been talking a big talk. Is that correct? She- Yes, from what I've heard. I mean, I, I didn't go to Bally's pressers in Eastbourne. Former British number one, Courtney. How could you disrespect her like that? My bad. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I did overhear quite a few pieces because obviously the, the press room is mic'd, so you overhear what the person's saying. And then when she gave her pre-tournament press, it was on these couches in the middle of the press room, so we can all hear what's yeah. going on. And there was a lot of talk about wanting to reclaim the British number one which I find to be such an illusory thing. 
Do we realize, <laughs> does she realize that the bar has been raised significantly for what it means to be a British when number one? When she was one? British number one, she was like, what, like 50-something? At best. At best. She peaked at, at number 50. Yeah. And spent almost all of her career, obviously, below her peak. Laura Robinson is now in the top 40 mm-hmm. or so, top 40-ish at least, and seems to be rising, not falling long-term. So, yeah. And Heather. And Heather. And Heather, yeah. So Heather's think, only two spots behind. She's like 39 or something. Yeah. So, good luck, Valley. Don't see it happening, unfortunately. I hate to break it to you. Yeah, so she, I just think it's a weird goal. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, it's not just like I want to win. I want to win a tournament, or I want to play well. It's like I want to recapture. Americans one. never talk about it like a thing. Never. They actually sort of reject it. Like yeah. if you ask Sam Quarry, like it's like, yeah, I guess I'm American number one. I guess it's all right. Yeah, I guess it's me. Yeah, eh. and that's sort of why, while a little bit, you know. Not what you want necessarily for a quote when you're writing a story about Sam Quarry reclaims number one from John Isner and you can't make it sound like there's any real rivalry there. But you do there. want to hear that from somebody to say like, yeah, I'm American number one, but I'm ranked outside the top 20. So that kind of sucks. And Quarry has always done that. Yeah. Quarry has always, very always good said that. Saying, I don't care about being, I said, he said, I want to be American number one because I'm like a top 10 player. Okay. Not because someone else fell behind. Maybe. And to be fair to, I mean, Laura said this all the time. Yeah. Like British number one doesn't mean that much to her. You can't I mean, have an she, island mentality about yeah, it. She's like, same with, with Jamie uh, in Eastbourne. Somebody asked her, you know, what is it? Obviously, she's now uh, American number three. And they asked her, you know, is the goal to be the American number one? And she's like, the goal is to be number one in the world. Yeah. If that's not your goal, what's the point? Yeah. And that's the jockish nature of Jamie Hampton. But that's right. If you ask Laura Robson... And you're not British, and there are no British press in the room. Yeah. If you ask her that question about the British number one, I think that, generally speaking, she 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 would be like, it's just not. I don't want to be ranked number thirty-seven. Yeah. I want to be ranked in the top ten. I want to be ranked in the top five. I want Contending to win for slams. Grand slams. Like the whole like British number one thing is stupid. Trying to strive beyond pluckiness. Yeah. As we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. There's no. There's really no honor. And you have Lucky. to respect that because, like, honestly, within Britain... It's so, easy to, it's so easy to get caught If in... you're British number one, it means something because it's, you're the British number one. And you can get endorsements. You can get all these sorts of things and actually have a pretty comfortable existence. So and, to and, have and you're, somebody and you're kind say... of set for life. Yeah. I mean... So to I have was, somebody say, I want more than that, that's the mentality you want. I once asked a British person who Annabelle Croft was because I wasn't sure. And she's, she's, I know she was on TV, but I wasn't really sure like what she was. It's like, oh, she was British number one in like the late eighties, and I was like, okay, but she wasn't ever a relevant player on the world stage. But she was a big fish in a very dry pond, a big dry pond, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So that's just sort of the met. It's all relative for them, and so you see the potential that Andy Murray has to be really a messiah to these people because he's the he's the one they've been prophesied about. Now he's come here to save them. And yeah, whether they like it or not, whether, they, whether they, he's not their pick, really, he's not. But uh, he's doing it for them. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. So that'll do it for us, I guess. Thank you for joining us on this episode forty-four, Women in Preview. Have a good one, folks. Ladies, don't need no haters. No, we don't.